Well, good morning. I didn't know I was coming up until just now, so that's great. <laughs> nice, smooth transition. All right. Well, happy April. Happy spring. I uh, love the typical spring weather of 75 in the afternoons and 10 degrees in the mornings. Always nice to wake up to. It's a privilege to be preaching to you this morning. We are going to be in Romans 10, if you all want to turn there in your Bibles. And we will be in the passage that Matthew just read for us. Well, for those who know me well, uh, they would agree that I am very good at making simple situations complicated. It's not something I'm proud of. And I know that people say that the first step to solving a problem is admitting that you have one. But I just haven't really experienced that. It's probably gotten worse since I've admitted it. Uh, for instance, if I need to go get food, but I don't know where to go, instead of just finding a place and just picking it and going to this place, I will sometimes make a, a tournament bracket of four different restaurants that I have in mind that I may want to choose from. And so, first of all, after coming up with four different restaurants, to choose from, and then choosing from those four, I usually go and get food, sometimes about 30 minutes later after I realize that I wanted to go get food. Uh, another example, getting out of the bed in the morning. So simple. It's one of the most difficult things in my life that I could possibly do. I can't stop hitting the snooze. Uh, don't ask me how long I hit the snooze this morning. Uh, I've tried all the different methods. A lot of people have said, oh, there's so many different methods or ways or possibilities to help people get out of bed earlier without hitting the snooze. But none of them have worked for me. Uh, people suggest putting your phone or your alarm clock across the room so that you actually have to get up and turn it off. But I simply just get up quickly, pick up my phone, hit the snooze, and go right back across the room and go back to bed for a couple more minutes. Uh, there are apps where in order to turn off your alarm, you have to solve either a couple of math problems or you have to uh, take a picture with an object such as you, know, you and your toothbrush. But I usually do those things, hit the snooze, and then just go right back to bed, right? I mean, th these are so, so complicated, th just these great methods. And the simple solution is, dude, just get up out of bed. Like, you just got to do it. You just got to choose to get up and stop hitting the snooze. But I am really good at making the simplest things complicated, along with other things. But I'm afraid to tell you guys more of them, and that would probably take up most of our time this morning. Why am I saying all this? Well, because if I were to guess, many of us in here like to take things that are simple, such as maybe certain tasks or situations, and we like to make them complicated. That's something that I think is sort of natural for all of us. Uh, some people call it our complexity bias. So I want you to think personally. Think about your life for a second. What are simple things that you naturally tend to make more complicated or make more difficult than really what it asks for. Maybe it's chores. Maybe it's making vacation plans or other kinds of possibilities or anything else that you can think of in your daily life. This is something that is easy for us to do. And I wonder if that complexity bias spills into our spiritual life and more specifically spills into our idea of the gospel. Perhaps when someone asks you, what is the gospel of Jesus Christ? Or if someone asks you, how can I be right before God? 
And answering those questions, there's a bunch of different ways we can, but perhaps we tend to make our answers to those questions more complicated than what it really is. And there are some complexities, and there are some topics in that that maybe could be expanded on a little more when discussing the gospel. But I think that as we read and as we study Romans 10, verses 1 through 13, I pray that we can see this morning and be reminded that the gospel is not only beautiful to understand and beautiful to accept, but it is also so simple. It's so clear that you don't have to be incredibly smart or knowledgeable to understand the gospel of Jesus. You don't have to go to seminary. You don't have to get a doctorate degree to understand the gospel of Jesus. The gospel is simple and easy for everyone to understand. And when we understand the simplicity, we see that that simplicity is so beautiful and so assuring to all of us. Well, the title of our message this morning is simply The Simple Gospel. The Simple Gospel. We will start with some observations from the text, and then we will close with some applications. Well, the first observation of the text we can see is in verse 1, and as we see, it's, it is Paul's longing. Paul's longing. If you remember Romans 9 from last week, you might notice that the beginning of chapter 10 is a lot like the beginning of chapter 9. Uh, Paul starts in Romans 9, verses 1 through 3, talking about his sorrow and his pain because his fellow native Israelites do not know Jesus, and they have, in fact, rejected the gospel message. And as we see in Romans 10:1, Paul starts this chapter almost the exact same way, saying, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. We see Paul's desire for their salvation being expressed all throughout the book of Acts by actually going to his people and proclaiming the gospel with them and to them. His desire for his people to be saved has then turned into an urgency and has turned into an outward preaching and teaching the good news of Jesus Christ. But notice something here in this particular verse. Paul's desire in his heart for their salvation is also expressed in prayer to God on behalf of his people. Paul says that while he continues to share the gospel with any opportunity, any chance that he has, he acknowledges here that it is only God who can save and only God who can open the eyes of Israel to Jesus. And so as he is actively pursuing them with the good news of Jesus, he is also praying to God for them to be saved because he recognizes that it is not by his desire and it is not by his words that people will come to know Jesus, that it is ultimately by the power and the grace of God. And Paul's longing for Israel has not only become expressed in his preaching, but also in his praying. The second observation that we can see from this text is Israel's quote-unquote righteousness. Israel's perceived righteousness. After Paul expresses his desire in prayers for his people, he then provides the reasons why they are not saved and why they do not know God. He begins in verse 2. He says, For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Here he acknowledges that the Jews have a sincerity and a genuine drive to pursue God and to honor him. And so the problem with the Israelites is not that they don't care about God. But what Paul says here instead is the problem is that their zeal 
The problem is that their devotion, the problem is that their enthusiasm is pointed in the wrong direction. Paul says that their zeal for God is not aligned with the truth of God. That one maybe can appreciate their dedication to God, but it doesn't lead to salvation because no matter how zealous they are, they're living in falsehood. And so God doesn't reward their zeal because their zeal isn't in accordance with truth. And their zeal for God is not according to knowledge because as we see in verse 3, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. So here's the scary part about a text like this. Their misguided zeal their misguided drive and devotion to God is actually the greatest wall that is blocking them from God. People can look at these Pharisees and say, wow, look at how dedicated they are to following God's law. Look at how disciplined and devoted they are to keep God's commands. But their dedication to following God's law in hopes that their works and their discipline will make them righteous is the exact same thing that makes them unrighteous before God. Because as Paul says here, instead of submitting to and embracing what is actually the righteousness of God, the Israelites instead are trying to become righteous on their own. They are so fixated on putting together their own resume of righteousness. That they forget that their own righteousness, according to Isaiah 64, is like filthy rags. They think that they can impress God with their works. And here's the even more dangerous thing. They think their own righteousness can equal God's righteousness. That it can measure up and so they say, look at how often I fast. Look at how much I tithe. Look at how often I go to the temple to pray. And look at how I don't commit adultery or murder. They say, if I can be righteous on my own before God with my own works, why listen to what anyone else has to say about another way to righteousness? So they refuse to submit to the truth because their zeal, their misguided zeal has blinded them from the truth. And here's the other reason why trying to establish their own righteousness by following the law is so wrong. It's because of their sin nature, they are unable to totally follow and keep the law of God. And that's been Paul's argument throughout the entire letter of Romans. And then you can even think of the book of James, where James says in his letter that if you are going to keep the law of God, then you need to keep the whole thing. And that means that if you break just one part of the law, that means you are guilty for breaking all of it. And Paul says in Romans 3.20 that the purpose of God's law was not ultimately for humanity to keep all of it. The purpose of the law was to show just how sinful and rebellious humanity really is. God gave his law to show his people, you cannot attain the righteousness that I expect from you. And yet in their prideful zeal, these Israelites who do not know Jesus believe that they can keep the whole thing and to be righteous on their own. They believe that they can fulfill verse 5 of this passage. They believe that they can fulfill righteousness that is based on the law. 
They may believe that the plane that they are piloting is leading them to a beautiful destination with beaches and sunsets and fantastic weather. But the plane that they are actually flying on their own is actually leading them to crash in the ocean. And this zeal isn't leading them to righteousness. It's leading them further and further into unrighteousness. And so while Paul describes the condition of his people and how they are blind to their false zeal in trying to establish their own righteousness, he then points to the next observation of our text, and that is God's righteousness. God's righteousness. Paul has pointed to the righteousness of God time and time again in his letter, stating that the righteousness of God is not found in man's fulfillment of the law, but that it is found in one man, and that man's name is Jesus Christ. And after Paul states that the Israelites' own righteousness does not measure up to God's, he then supports this point by saying in verse 4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. What he's saying here is Christ is the righteousness of God and that everything that the law of God requires has been satisfied in Jesus and what he has done. There were two things that needed to be accomplished in regard to the law of God. The first one was it needed to be perfectly obeyed and followed. And the second requirement was those who didn't perfectly follow it and went against it needed to be judged and needed to be punished. And Paul is saying here, Jesus has accomplished both of those things. He perfectly obeyed God's law and he never sinned in his life. And not only that, but he took the punishment and he took the judgment on himself for those who sinned against God. The law has reached its fulfillment in Jesus. And because of that, the complete righteousness of God that humanity is looking for is found in none other than Jesus. But notice this last part. This righteousness of God, which is only found in Jesus, is given to everyone who believes. Everyone who believes. This is the only requirement of us to attain the righteousness of God, and that is to come to faith in Jesus. Coming to faith in Jesus means giving up trying to establish your own righteousness. It means repenting for your sins and to submit to the one who is the righteousness of God and the one who gives the righteousness of God. In verses 5 through 7, Paul talks about the righteousness that is based on the law in comparison to the righteousness that is based on faith. And while it is true that righteousness can be obtained by fulfilling perfectly all the commands of the law, Paul has constantly expressed how impossible that is for us because everyone in some way has violated the law. But then he turns to the righteousness that's based on faith in verse 6. And when describing it, he references a passage from Deuteronomy 30 saying, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. As he references this passage in Deuteronomy, you see how he makes side comments in parentheses in response to these questions. And as you see in Paul's comments in parentheses, you see that he cannot help 
but see how Jesus fulfills this verse in Deuteronomy. And what he means here in describing the righteousness based on faith is that in order for you to obtain the righteousness of God, there is no need for you to try and earn that on your own. In fact, it's impossible to try and earn that on your own. Because as you see here, in regards to ascending into heaven or descending into the abyss, we see that trying to gain the righteousness of God on our own requires a supernatural work. And that is something that we can't accomplish. These are works that we cannot do. But the righteousness based on faith teaches that Jesus Christ has already come down to this earth and that Jesus has already risen from the dead. And while these works were never something that you could do, Jesus has done them for you so that you may believe in him and that you may receive the righteousness of God as a response to that. And Paul continues in saying this, that this righteousness based on faith in Jesus is not as far as heaven from you. But in verse 8, he continues in saying, this righteousness based on faith is as near to you as your mouth and as your heart. So the beauty of this righteousness that is based on faith is that even when you didn't deserve it because of your sin, God graciously sent his son to do what you couldn't. To perfectly obey the law and to die for those who disobeyed it, which is all of us, so that we may be forgiven and that we may be brought close with God again. If righteousness and forgiveness was based on works for us, it would be as far as heaven or it would be as far as the abyss for us to gain. But because of Jesus, grace and righteousness and eternal life and freedom is as close to you as you can possibly imagine, as close to you as your heart and as your mouth, which then leads to our final observation of the text, and that is our invitation to receive this beautiful, simple gospel. As Paul describes the closeness of this righteousness based on faith in Jesus, he then applies this closeness by giving us an invitation, starting in verses 9 and going into 10. He says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Such a beautiful and simple description of the gospel. First, Paul mentions confession and belief together in discussing how someone is saved. And he says it in saying that outward confession comes from an inward faith. And that these are both responses that when receiving the gospel cannot be separated from each other. You can't have one without the other. Salvation does not simply happen by a mere confession or statement. We can't simply say that Jesus is Lord and not believe that in our hearts and expect to be forgiven. Confession needs to be accompanied by an inward belief and an inward faith. And on the other side of that, at the same time, the evidence of your inward faith is an outward confession. That if you come to faith in Jesus, your spirit and God's spirit that is now living inside you cannot help but confess and acknowledge Jesus outwardly. 
And that's through baptism. But that is also along with verbally expressing it. Confession and belief are two sides of the same coin in receiving the gospel. And so when we see a passage, what are we to confess? And what are we to believe? We confess that Jesus is Lord. We confess that Jesus is Lord. We're to confess that, yes, Jesus is our personal Lord and Savior. But in this passage, Paul here is speaking more of Jesus being the objective Lord and the objective Savior of all. And that, in other words, you not only confess that Jesus is your Lord and God, but when we confess, we confess that Jesus is the Lord and the God of heaven and of earth. And then according to verse 12, the Lord and God of everything. And that he is not only worthy of the rule and reign of your life, but he is worthy of the rule and reign of all life. That Jesus is not just the one who saves you who believes. Jesus is the one who saves all who believe. This is what we confess when we receive the gospel. And then we believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead. We believe that God raised him from the dead. When we believe, we do not just mentally think and accept the event of Jesus' resurrection on its own. When we believe in Jesus, we have an inward, personal acceptance and trust not just in what Jesus has done, but what Jesus' death and resurrection means for us. When we believe in our hearts that God raised Jesus from the dead, we believe that Jesus went to the cross as a sacrifice in our place for our sins so that God's judgment of our sin would no longer fall on us, but it would fall on him instead. And not only did he die for our sins on the cross, we also believe that he also rose from the dead three days later. And the significance of that is, it, is to show that his sacrifice for our sins worked. That his death was enough to pay for our sins. And God raised him from the dead to show that forgiveness of sins and eternal life and freedom and joy is found in Jesus. And it's found in Jesus alone. And so this is important for us to know that Jesus' lordship and God's raising him from the dead are impossible to separate because it is by Jesus' resurrection that his lordship is recognized. And so Paul here says, for those who confess that Jesus is the saving, ruling Lord of all who come to him and who believe with all their heart that he died for their sins and that God raised him from the dead, they will be saved. And in verse 10, he says, they will also be justified. Again, salvation, justification, held together. There's no significant difference or separation between the two. Those who come to Jesus are saved and they are justified in the courtroom of God because Jesus is representing them in front of the Father. And as Paul finishes this section in verses 11 through 13, he says that this salvation is, is not only available to a certain race or to a certain people group. 
Paul says that this salvation, this righteousness that comes from faith, is available to all who believe. Starting in verse 11, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I love what that says, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. God's salvation is not on a budget. God's not listening to a Dave Ramsey podcast figuring out how he can budget wisely his salvation. He's eternally rich in salvation. He's rolling in salvation. And he's not keeping it to himself, nor is he giving it only to the Jews or only to the Gentiles, but he is giving his salvation to all who call on his name and all who believe in his son Jesus. Anyone, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus who confesses that he is Lord and believes with their heart that he has died for their sins and that God has raised him from the dead, anyone who believes this and does this, you will be saved. You will not be put to shame. You will be justified. What a simple, beautiful gospel that has been given to us. There's no mountain that we need to climb. There's no amount of works to put on a resume. There's no hoops. There's no caveats to jump through. There's no huge exam to take where we must know the whole counsel of God. We're simply invited to just come to Jesus in faith. We bring all of ourselves to him. We lay our life down to him. And we call out to him in faith. And we have the promise from God, from his word, that if we do this, we will be saved. We will be justified, forgiven. Not put to shame, but be declared righteous because of Jesus and our trust in him. Such a beautiful gospel. Such a simple gospel. It's such a simple invitation to everyone. A few applications we can take from this passage, and then we will close. The first application is to proclaim and pray. Proclaim and pray. We should admire Paul's love and desire for his people to come to know Jesus. And we should also have that desire and imitate how he responds to that desire. All of us in here who are Christians have a desire for people around us to come to Jesus and to confess and to believe in him. And as we observe Paul's ministry, specifically in the book of Acts, he proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ to the very people he desires to come to faith. And as Christ followers, that should be our response as well. All of us desire for our coworkers or for our neighbors, our friends or our classmates or our professors, or our family, to come and to know Jesus. And as we desire for these people to know Jesus, we must proclaim this simple gospel of Jesus Christ to them. 
and that we should not only reflect Christ in our words and in our deeds, but we should also reflect Christ in how we proclaim the gospel and share the gospel with them as we desire for them to be saved. And so while it may overwhelm you to think of everyone around you who is not a believer, let's just start this morning. Who is that one person you desire to know Christ? Who's that one person that for years you have desired for them to know Jesus? Well, I encourage you from the passage this morning in response to that desire, be intentional in your conversations with them. Be strategic and look for opportunities to share the good news of Jesus Christ to them. But as we proclaim this simple gospel, we must not solely rely on our abilities to share the gospel with them in order that they may be saved. Because as you read verse 1, while we proclaim the gospel, the most important action that we can do is to ask God to save those that are around us. Because while we are called to share the gospel, it's only by God's grace that people receive the gospel. It was only by the grace of God that your eyes were opened to your sin and to your Savior Jesus. And it is only by God's grace that others around you will have their eyes opened as well. And so do not ultimately depend on your proclamation of the gospel for their salvation. Don't, don't depend on your, your eloquent speech or your, your great knowledge of this. Depend on God for their salvation. You can stumble and you can stutter and you can mumble the gospel to someone. But if God wants to save them, he will certainly do that no matter how articulate you are, no matter how brilliant you may be to share the gospel. God used Moses who had a major stuttering problem to tell Pharaoh, to tell the ruler of Egypt, let my people go. And God used Paul to proclaim the gospel to Jews and Gentiles. When Paul described himself as not an eloquent speaker, who does not bring lofty words and great wisdom. If people come to Jesus, it will not ultimately be because of your words. It will ultimately be because of God's power. And so proclaim the gospel and pray to the Lord that he may save those who receive the gospel. Our second application is stop overcomplicating righteousness. Stop overcomplicating righteousness. The truth regarding your righteousness is simple. Your righteousness will never be enough. It's simple. You can have all the zeal to follow God as much as you want. You can do as many good things as much as you want. You can avoid getting drunk. You can avoid committing adultery. You can avoid cheating on your taxes, which I think that's due here in a couple of weeks, just reminding myself as well. You can avoid committing immoral business practices. You can grow up in a Christian home. You can be from the Bible Belt. You can go to church every Sunday and every Wednesday. You can pray every day. You can read your Bible every day. You can tithe. You can stay married to your spouse. You can love and raise your kids well. You can love your neighbor and your coworkers and treat them well. You can listen to Shane and Shane every time you're in your car, or Phil Wickham if you're a little bit more contemporary. Listen to this, you can get baptized. But if you do all of these things, with the hope that these works will save you and make you righteous before God, you are incredibly mistaken, just like these Israelites that Paul is talking about here. 
we can overcomplicate righteousness by thinking that we are actually able to be righteous on our own. But here's what this passage teaches. Your righteousness, based on your own works, will never be God's righteousness. God demands complete and total perfection and holiness. And you, a sinner, have sinned against him and have broken his law. So do not deceive yourself in thinking, but if I just dedicated myself a little more to doing the right thing, if I had just a few more good works on my resume, maybe I will be righteous before God. Maybe I will be accepted by my own performance. No, your works will never measure up to God's righteousness. Stop trying to be righteous by your own zeal and by your own life. And here's the simple truth regarding God's righteousness. It's only found in Jesus. It's only found in Jesus. The righteousness of God is not found in Jesus plus our good works. If the righteousness of God was a group project, Jesus would be responsible for all of the work and we would be responsible for none of it. And that's another way we complicate the righteousness of God. We want at least just a little bit of credit. Even if it's less than 1%, we want just a little bit of our own credit. But verse 4 says, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Anyone who is right before God is only right because of the work of Jesus on the cross and him raising from the dead three days later. And Christian, if you're discouraged in your own faith and maybe questioning your salvation because you are looking at your life and how you still fall short of honoring God, praise God for that because your confidence in your righteousness before God was never found in yourself. It was never found in your own heart. It was never found in your own performance. It's found in Jesus and while we can strive to grow day to day in becoming more like Jesus, we must continue to remember that our status before God is secure because of what Jesus has done. We are right before God, not because of how great we are, but because of how great Jesus is and because we trust in him. Stop overcomplicating righteousness. Realize and remember that the righteousness of God is only found in Jesus. And the final application is confess and believe. Confess and believe. Because your own righteousness will never measure up and because you can't save yourself, you are simply invited to come to Jesus to be saved. You are invited to see the lordship of Jesus, to see how he took your sins and took your unrighteousness on himself, to see how he died for you, to see that he has risen from the grave, and to see that if you simply call on him, you will be saved. You are invited to be forgiven. You are invited to be freed from your sin. And you don't have to do anything other than believe and confess that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead so that you may be forgiven for your sins. It's a simple invitation. But it's hard. It can be hard. It's hard because it involves you laying down any hope to be righteous on your own. It's hard because it involves you to repent of your sins, perhaps the one that you like to keep in the dark, 
It's hard because it involves you to not only repent of your sins, it involves you to turn away from being mastered by them, to no longer live in them. And perhaps it's hard for you this morning because you think you are so far out of God's reach that Jesus can't possibly have saved you. You are living in such shame. And perhaps you think that if you call on him, it will be the opposite of verse 11, that you will stay in shame instead of being removed from it. But I want to affirm what this passage says about you who believe. The grace of God, the righteousness of God, is as near to you today as your heart and your mouth. And that is because Jesus is the Lord who rose from the dead for the forgiveness of your sin. And his grace is available to all of you if you confess and you believe in him. Because of Jesus, you have the assurance you will never be put to shame. You will never be turned away. If you call on him, you will be saved. You will be justified. And the riches of his grace will be bestowed upon you. So if you do not know Christ today, I invite you with the simple gospel invitation. Believe in Jesus, confess the name of Jesus, and come and be saved, and be forgiven. And to the Christian, I encourage you to hold fast to your belief and to your confession. Continue to preach this simple gospel to yourself when you feel tempted to add your works to your salvation. Continue to preach this simple gospel to yourself when you are feeling the shame of your sin. And continue also in your zeal for God that is according to knowledge, that is aligned with the truth. Because it is according to the righteousness of God that is found in Jesus. Stay assured that when God calls you and you answer, he keeps you. Do not be discouraged. Continue in growing and preaching this simple gospel to yourself and clinging to this more than the air that you breathe. Because in Jesus, you are saved. You are justified. And you will not be put to shame. Either come this morning for the very first time to accept this simple gospel invitation. Or if you are a Christian, continue to hold fast to your confession and hold fast to your belief and your hope in this simple gospel. Let me pray for us. Father, I don't know where um, everyone is this morning, just in regards to their care for you, their love for you, their faith in you. Perhaps there are many in here who um, do know you and have confessed and have believed in the name of Jesus. Or perhaps there is discouragement, or perhaps there is a temptation for all of us to to just not rest in the work of Jesus. To think that in some way, you know, I believe that Jesus died for me. Yes, I believe that I'm saved in him, but 
Perhaps the thought is, maybe there's something that I still need to do. Or there's something that I still need to accomplish. I pray that as we read a passage like this this morning, that we are reminded that the work of salvation has already been accomplished in Jesus. I pray that all of us as Christ followers may be encouraged by this. Encouraged by the simplicity of this to perhaps as we have made our righteousness so complex, help us return to this gospel of simplicity. This gospel that it was never about what we have done. It was never about our actions. It was never about how great of a person we were. Your word says that while we were still sinners, Lord Jesus, you died for us. When we were at our worst, when we were helpless, when we were at our weakest, this was when you died for us. You didn't die for us when we had our act together. You didn't die for us when we were cleaning ourselves up. And perhaps there are many people in here just trying to clean themselves up in front of you. And I pray that we just acknowledge this morning, if we have not already, to acknowledge that we are sinners with righteousness that is like filthy rags. And we don't try and fake it. We don't try to act better than what we actually are. But that we are honest as we approach your throne and that we are honest as we approach your son, Jesus. And I pray that in this honesty, in this vulnerability, in our calling to you, Help them, Lord, be assured that you hear them. And not only do you hear their call, you save them when they call to you. And so, Father, I pray for us as Christians that we hold fast to the simple belief and confession in your son, Jesus. And, Lord, I want to pray just as Paul prays this morning for those who do not know you, for you to save them this morning. I'd be foolish to think that perhaps there weren't people in here who have not accepted this simple gospel message. And my prayer this morning is that, Lord Jesus, they see you for the very first time. They see how you took their sin, the sins that they have committed in front of people, the sins that they have committed when no one's looking. that as they bring their shame to you, I pray that they may acknowledge and that they may see, God, that those who come to you will never be in shame anymore. Lord, we thank you for the truth that anyone who confesses that Jesus is Lord and that you, Father, raised him from the dead, we will be saved. I pray that we rest in this salvation. And Lord, I pray that those come and taste this salvation this morning for the very first time. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.